Now, I asked you guys to share about your dream because tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 4, and Psalm 4 speaks about the concept of sleep. Now, this clicker is not working. Can we go to the next slide? Uh, concept of sleep. And, and I want us to think about this. God's word is amazing because it really speaks into our lives, not just the big picture life, but even the nitty gritty, what, what, how it plays out day by day. And something like sleep is so common. All of us sleep. And, and yet there's something spiritual and theological about sleep as well. And I don't, I don't want to over-spiritualize it because it is indeed just us sleeping. But at the same time, we are human beings and we do need sleep. And therefore, because we are created in the image of God, there's something about sleep that God has created into our regular rhythm that's important. So let's talk a little bit about the theology of sleep. The theology of sleep. On average, one-third of the human life is spent sleeping. I guess based on some statistics out there. Um, I actually got this in my seminary class, so I didn't check where to get your sources from. So don't, don't ask me where I'm getting my data. Uh, just took it from my seminary class. But on average, one-third of the human life is spent sleeping. I'm not surprised by that number, right? And now some of you guys might be less. Some of you guys might be more. Um, I'm probably a lot less. Uh, and, but there's something about sleep. It's deeply human. Deeply human. It's because we think about our sleep, our sleeping habits impact everything in our life, right? It's, it's holistic. It impacts our physical health, impacts our diet, impacts our cognitive ability, even impacts uh, the way we control our feelings, right? There, there's, sleep has a deep impact to who we are as human beings. And so when we talk about sleep, when we think about it, it's not just a physical reality. There is something deeply spiritual about it. God created us with the need to sleep. For instance, the first account of man sleeping is found before Genesis chapter 2. God put Adam to sleep so that he may create Eve, right? There's something that's already there before the fall. Sleep is not evil. Sleep didn't come because we're just suddenly weakened by sin. Sleep was always part of the rhythm of a human life. And for some of you guys hearing that, perhaps you love it. You're like, yes, let's sleep some more. Other of us, like me, probably say, no, I'd rather not sleep. I'd rather be productive. And, and so we're on different pages about this. But as we talk about sleep, we also recognize that now post-fall, in this sinful, fallen world, we struggle with sleep. And the bigger term, psychological term of this is insomnia. And insomnia is, you know, the struggle to sleep. And when we talk about insomnia, we have to realize it is indeed a subjective experience, meaning when someone says they're struggling with insomnia, there's a lot of different ways someone may struggle with it. A lot of different factors to it. A lot of different factors impact our sleep, right? Because indeed, there's some factors that are due to organic, organic causes, right? There's definitely something about their minds, 
their brains, their organic compounds that impact their sleep, or perhaps they're just physically sick. And it's just hard to sleep. They're, they're in pain. They're coughing. It's hard to breathe, right? And so there's just physical causes to it. There's also environmental causes, right? You, perhaps you have the light on, or your house is next to a train and goes by in the middle of the night. Um, dog barking. Um, it can be even really related to your habits, right? You're drinking coffee at night and you just, you have caffeine running through you, right? And so we recognize there's all these different impacts that can really, all these different factors that can really impact our sleep and cause insomnia. When people say they struggle with this, many times it's due to more of a mental issue of stress and worry, something bothering them minds and when i talk about something mental i don't mean it's disconnected from our emotional or physical stuff because everything is connected right when we think about sleep it, it compounds upon one another insomnia compounds right if you if you're deprived of sleep it can lead to stuff like lack of focus which leads to more stress which leads to more worry which impacts your sleep your next night so it's a, it becomes a cycle right and so so we recognize that but, we, but what I want to talk about here for tonight is to deal with how do we wrestle with this stress, with this fear, with this worry that may exist in our mind that impacts our sleep or it may impact other aspects of your life. Really, when we come down to the core of it, fear, anxiety, stress is part of the human experience that we have to wrestle with. And so when we talk about something like sleep, yes, we recognize the physical aspect of it. We recognize that there's medical needs. We allow the medical experts to, you know, prescribe the right help for insomniacs. We let uh, behavior experts, you know, set the right routines for them and things like that. But when it comes to this more mental, what I would call a spiritual side of this struggle, what we want to do is look at scripture. Look at scripture and how it helps us. And so take your Bibles with me, turn to Psalm 4, the fourth Psalm. Fourth Psalm, we'll take a look at this and we'll see how this Psalm addresses, addresses the, the topic of sleep. Psalm 4, it's a short Psalm, I'm going to read the whole thing for us. Psalm 4, starting with the subtext, that is def, that's part of the original text, so that's inspired text there. Psalm 4, to the choir master with stringing instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Salah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Salah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Taking a look at this song, we see here in the final verse, verse 8, that 
David, the author of this psalm, was able to find peace and comfort, even in the midst, in the face of his adversaries, even when his life was on the brink of death, even when his friends have abandoned him, he was able to sleep, trusting in the Lord's protection over him. How is he able to do that? How is David able to still lie down sleep even though there's all these exterior stress that can come upon him? We're going to take a look here. We're going to see then three characteristics of God that David rests upon, that David finds confidence in to help him find that peace and comfort. Three characteristics of God. First characteristic is this. We see the presence of God the presence of God. We turn and we look at verse one and we see here, David prays to God. And the reason why David prays to God here in verse one is not because he has done anything right. He's, he's probably on the run here, but he's praying to God because of who God is, right? He calls out to God and he says, Oh God of my righteousness. Oh God of my righteousness this is a god who maintains and vindicates david's righteousness and what we see here this phrase oh god of my righteousness when it says my righteousness it's not speaking of david's righteousness it's saying here that david is found righteous because of his god it is like saying evidence of righteousness, right? It's the evidence that points to righteousness, the evidence that shows proof. David is saying, look at my God if you want proof of my righteousness. Don't look at me. Look at the God of my righteousness. God here is like a lawyer who defends David's righteous status before his enemies. And it says here that this God, David prays to this God because this God has given him relief when he was in distress. In the Hebrew, it's literally saying, you have widened the way when I was in the narrows. Not, not in the narrows like we're in Zion, but narrows as in your life feels like you're trapped in a box, like restricted, and you don't know what to do. You feel like you can't escape. See, David's distress right now is, is squeezing him. It's enclosing the space around him. It's making it hard for him to breathe. It's, it's like a, a rope around his neck, just slowly, slightly, ever so tightening, tightening there. And God then becomes this helping hand of relief. He loosens that bond and frees David to breathe again. It's like when you hold your breath underwater for a while and you finally come up and you take that fresh gulp of air just gasping for it. This is what it's like when God relieves you when you're distressed. Do you remember a time when God has given you such a relief? Because that's what David's doing here. He's remembering that. He's remembering that God is one who has watched over him. How many times has God done that for you? Consider things that may put you in stress. Think about times, maybe a project deadline that was coming up. Maybe you had to deal with a difficult customer or client. Maybe it was with a 
with a relationship that was an issue and there's someone you had to confront and you were stressing over that. You were losing sleep over that. And what happens before you actually face this situation your mind will end up spinning, right? It'll just going after scenario after scenario, just building up on one another and just becomes layers of stress that weighs you down. Do you remember how God has helped you through those situations? How God has helped you see you, see you to the end? Perhaps God helps you along by blessing you with a good conversation with the person you need to talk to. Perhaps he's giving you an unexpected deadline extension. Or maybe just along the way when you're feeling down, God has brought a friend along your side off to you to encourage you. How many times has God helped you? How many times has he widened your way when life seems to box you in? We see here, God gives relief when David is in distress. And then it says, David cries out, be gracious to me. Gracious to me. The, the word grace here stands for undeserved goodness. Undeserved goodness. See, David is asking God to show him the goodness, not because David deserves it, but because God is a good God who is full of grace. God is, a, God is full of grace. He's full of love. He's full of compassion. And he wants to show you grace. And he will answer you when you cry out to him. He desires to give his children good gifts. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. God is a Father who wants to bless his children. And this is our Heavenly Father. And so what we see here in this first verse is that God's presence should give you confidence to pray. Should give you confidence to pray. Gives you confidence to wrestle with your issues, to face your trials, and to know that in the end, you can have confidence that there will be relief because God is with you. It is, it is certainly easy to wrestle with this, right? Especially when you're in a, in a really tight bind and you're not too sure what to do. And you're wrestling with your heart. You're wrestling with external factors, wrestling with other people. And, and, and when, you're, when you're wrestling with all this, sometimes you're even wrestling with God in his presence in your life. You wonder to yourself, does God care? And we start thinking that maybe you perhaps leads to another question. You start asking yourself, did I anger God somewhere? Is this, do I deserve what I'm going through? Did I do something wrong? Why are these things happening? And maybe you think, perhaps I deserve to be in this position. And we're reminded here that yes, we don't deserve God's grace, but yet God is full of grace. It's full of love, full of compassion. Ephesians tells us that God is rich in his mercy. And he wants to give it to you. He wants to give you all that he has. And he will bless all those who seek after him. 
All right. Well, back on. So, yeah, perhaps it's been, perhaps you're dying like this battery here. And I don't know what trial you're going through. Everyone's trial is different. But what I can tell you is that whatever trial you may be facing, God's presence is indeed with you. And you can go to him. David recognized that. He recognized that he can go to God. And so he cries out to God, believing, trusting, knowing that God will answer him. Which brings us then to our next point. We'll see here God's protection. David then begins to address his enemies. He turns his attention to them. He cries out. He goes to them. He says, oh, men. The ESV says, oh, men. I think the, the Hebrew says, son of men. Um, and really, it's just talking about humanity, talking about a group of people who's attacking, attacking David. And these men, they are shaming David's honor. They are spreading lies about David. They are attacking his reputation. And we understand this. When we read through the life of David, we see that David had friends, had family members. His own son always tried to make him look like the bad guy. Make him look like the one who's wrong. Make him look like the sinner. And just consider for a moment just how much distress David must be in. I mean, have you ever had your own reputation attacked before? Have you ever had your own honor shamed before? Think about insults and how many times insults hurt more than perhaps even a physical attack, right? Because when we think about physical pain, like, you know, we see it, we understand why it's painful, but emotional pain, sometimes we don't understand it. Sometimes it's difficult to wrestle with it. It's like, why does it hurt so much? And, and there are times when insults will be thrown at us and a lie gets planted in your head and you start questioning that lie over and over again to a point where you might actually start believing it's true. You see how dangerous these insults can be. Think about where David's at. And then note how David addresses his enemies. His confidence, despite all that's going on around him, is so high. And he questions them. He says, how long? How long shall my honor be turned to shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David here questions his enemies, not because he feels like their, their attacks are endless. He calls what they're doing vain, calls what they're doing lies. You see, David here, He's questioning, why are you even doing this? It's so pointless. David questions their pursuit after vanity. This is nothing. He's wondering, why do you keep doing this over and over again? What reward is there for you? Because there is none. See, David was confident in his God. He trusts in his God. And, and he recognized his trust. He knows his trust because in the very next verse, verse 3, he knows that God has set him apart. God has set him apart. 
He's set him apart. That means God has chosen David, just like how God has chosen us to be saved. And he has separated us and kept us, called us his children. And which means when God has called you, God has secured you. God will never let you go. He will hold you fast. God protects them. God protects his godly ones. What we see here in verse 3 and 4 is we see two distinct people in this world. Those who are godly, those who pursue or love this world, pursue the vanity of this world. We see two types of people here. God has separated the godly from himself, but those who love vain words seek after lies. Those are another set of people. And David knows, David knows that for those whom God has set apart, the godly ones, God will never abandon, which is why he says with confidence. He knows that he's still addressing his enemies. He said, know this, my adversaries, know this, that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself and that the Lord will hear me when I call to him. Know this, that my God has not abandoned me and he will answer my cry. And this is confidence that David has. I mean, look here in verse 4, what David even calls his enemies to do after this. He tells them to be angry and do not sin. And there's this term, be angry here. It, it literally means to quake, to tremble. And so it's not necessarily talking about the, the emotion of anger. It's talking about this deep anger or this deep emotion that trembles the soul that rattles the soul it, it could be talking about frustration or agitation maybe it could be referring to anger it could be referring to all these things that can really shake up you on the inside so when you say tremble and do not sin and these two commands here they come together as one we can't separate them right we can't separate these commands these commands come together as one and David here, what he's doing is he's recognizing that his enemies attack him because they cannot face the truth. They cannot face the truth. They cannot face the truth that they are the ones who are wrong. They're the ones who are pursuing vain lies in their life. I mean, to, to understand this better, let's, let's think about how David is speaking using these exhortations he's expressing right he's expressing his confidence in god that god will protect him that no matter what his enemies will do their attacks fail in vain and it's in light of this truth right and telling them hey know this you will fail imagine where the david's enemies will be they can they can end up being frustrated right have you, have you ever tried to attack someone before and they're they just seem to knock it off and don't not even bother by it it frustrates them right it frustrates you and so you can imagine your enemies being frustrated being perplexed being angry at david's fortitude i mean how, they're probably questioning who is this man how can he endure so much how can he continue to go on why can't we break him and so david here recognizing this he instructs them to be angry, be agitated, to tremble, to be disturbed deep in your soul, and do not sin. 
In other words, that frustration, don't take it out into more sin. Instead, he tells them to ponder, to ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent or be still. He instructs them, instructs them to think about their emotional distress here. And he tells them that as they ponder upon this, as they think through this, as they meditate upon why they're so shaken up by David's confidence, recognize that what you need to do is to offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Verse 5. To return back to God and experience his saving grace. Now, this is the exhortation David gives to his enemies, but this is the same kind of counsel we need to give to ourselves when we wrestle with these kind of thoughts in our minds, this kind of stress and emotional turmoil in our hearts. The application here is God's protection gives you confidence to proclaim truth. And it's not just proclaiming truth to others. Certainly that here, we can apply this text to that. that we, Knowing that God protects us, we can proclaim truth out there to those who hate Christianity, those who hate scripture. We can proclaim truth with them, knowing that our God is with us. But this can also be working in our own hearts. Or when we wrestle with our own lies in our minds where we need to speak truth back. Sometimes our worst enemies are our own doubts and failures, right? Our own minds can often perceive and trace after lies, and it can easily pursue after vanity. And our minds can cause us to doubt God. And that can make us frustrated, can make us angry, can make us perplexed, makes us disturbed in our souls. And that emotional buildup can easily lead us to sin. Recognize what's being said here. Be angry. Tremble. Meaning don't just cast away those emotions, but wrestle with them. Wrestle with them and do not sin. Wrestle with them by thinking, by pondering your heart in your bed. Be still and face your own fears and face them knowing that God will protect you. Knowing that God is with you and God will keep you and God will hold you fast. Meditate upon your soul. What's causing, what is causing you to be anxious? What is causing you to be so worried? What is keeping you up at night? What is all, what's the turmoil going on in your heart? Ask yourself these hard heart questions. And these questions will reveal to you. It will reveal to you where your treasure is. Because when we're dealing with stuff like anger, we're dealing with stuff like frustration and anxiety, we're really dealing with where are you placing your treasures in your heart? What do you truly love in your heart? That is really the, when we get down to the nitty gritty, that's where it's at. That's the root question. What do you love at this moment of time? Which then leads us to the next point, to remember God's provision. Remember God's provision. 
And when we talk about God's provision, we're reminded here of what God has given to us, what God has given us to love, how he has created us in our hearts, what we are made to do to worship God. Let's take a look here. In verse 6, David here says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Now, in your Bible, in my Bible, the ESV, they have the quotation after going on to the next line as, as well. In the Hebrew text, there's no quotation marks. So this is an interpretive thing. I think the question is, I think it's just a question. That's the quotation. Who will show us some good? And then David answers, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And so, and so we get this question, who will show us some good? This question here is indeed the question asked by many of us who are in distress. Who will show us some good? I don't know who the many are here. I don't think that really matters. But what we do see here is an answer from David. His answer comes in the form of a prayer. A prayer that's actually derived from scriptures, derived from Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, 26. It's a blessing that God has given to Israel. It's a blessing that we well know as a song these days, as called the blessing. And then we're going to just read the scripture verse. Numbers chapter 6. Verse 24, 26 says, The Lord, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace. This is the blessing that God has given to Israel after taking them out of Egypt, after giving them the law and establishing them, after setting the priestly, um, the Aaronic priesthood about them so they can offer the right sacrifices. God here says, this is what I'm doing. And this is my promise to you. I will bless you. And I will show you the light of my face upon you. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for God's face to shine upon us? What does that phrase represent? If you take a look in scripture, this phrase is actually used many times when speaking about God and in the prayers to God. We actually see this used multiple times throughout the Psalms. For instance, Psalm 31.16 says this, Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. And so there's a connection between God showing his face, shining his face upon people and salvation. There's a connection there. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. And when we see this, then we see how this play portrays out further. Psalm 67, verse 1 and 2 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. So not only does God shine his face, save us, it's not representing his saving grace, his blessing upon his people, but when God shines his face upon his people, it also demonstrates his saving power to the nations. So there's a connection there between God's people and being able to have the light of God's face shine upon them. 
Psalm 89, verse 15. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. Those who walk in the light of God's face are joyous people. They're ones who shout with joy. They're ones who have this, this joy that's found just distinct, just this utmost joy that's full, founded upon God. If you look with me here in Psalm 4, we see that joy being placed into David's heart. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. See, David recognized that the light of God's face becomes the object of joy for the believer because it is his blessing, his salvation upon us. But the joy that we have is to see God's face. David here compares that joy to grain and wine. And these are not bad things, right? We, they're, they're, they're earthly things, but they're not bad. They're not necessarily sinful, right? Grain and wine are actually blessings from God given to, uh, given to Israel, right? And these are things that we can definitely rejoice in. Grain represents a full stomach, a sense of satisfaction and wealth. Wine represents a good time, right? A merry time to, to enjoy life. And so there's nothing wrong with grain and wine. But here David says that you have put more joy in my heart than this. More joy. And the word more here is not a quantitative comparison. David here is saying that there is this distinct joy. A distinct joy that's different, that's incomparable, that's infinitely greater than any other earthly treasure, a joy that's found in the face of God. A distinct joy that we can all experience in our life right now. And this distinct Christian joy is foundation to our walks. It's how God separates his godly ones from the rest of the world by shining his face upon believers and putting that God-centered joy in their hearts. This, this joy is what separates us from unbelievers. The world may love vanity, rejoice in vanity, but the godly ones rejoice in God. Note here what's being said, what I'm saying. Our goal is not to pursue joy. Right? We don't make joy the object of our worship. Right? We can get that wrong sometimes. Recognize that we're not to worship joy. We're not pursuing that. What we're worshiping is God. We're pursuing God with our lives. And it's in our pursuit of God and seeing God's face. That's what gives us the fullest satisfaction of our hearts. To know God. To see God. And this is so much more true for the church today. For us. Because we have Jesus Christ. The joy that's awakened for the New Testament Christian. 
is found through the face of Jesus Christ. Give me to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter four. We see here how this truth comes out in the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four says, in their case, speaking of those who are perishing, those who are unbelievers, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see here again, a distinction between those who are unbelievers and they're blinded to destroy. They're blinded to the light of the gospel and they're pursuing vanity. They're pursuing lies. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, we have Christ. And we preached him crucified. And God has shined a light into our hearts so that we can see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has lifted the veil of our hearts. And he has placed in our hearts pure, undefiled joy. A joy that is found in Christ alone. It's a joy that we can hold on to. A joy that stabilizes us. A joy that gives us confidence. And all that we do because it's joy that points to our heavenly treasure that's secure. We have this joy in our hearts now. Which is why Paul can write in the very next verse, verse 7, we have this treasure this joy in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We, we see here how all the fears and stress, anxieties, the worries of this world can it's the realities. They're real. They definitely impact us. We feel them, but they will not get down to the root of it all. They will not quench our joy. We have a treasure that is indestructible. And that gives us confidence. That gives us confidence to face all this to face our fears and worries and anxieties, to give it all up and say, I trust in God because he is my joy. No matter what this world brings, when you have this joy, hope is not lost. Second Corinthians 4, 16, in the, within the same context. So we do not lose hearts. Though our outer selves is wasting away, our inner selves being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. You see here this joy that we have in the face of Jesus Christ. It is distinct, different, without comparison to any other glory that can be found here on earth. We have that. We have that. David's confidence, back to Psalm, David's confidence stems from this, and this gives him hope, peace, and comfort, which is why he can say in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, my joy, O Lord, you alone make me dwell in safety. See here how David's sleep, David's sleep here demonstrates his joy, his trust in Christ. There is indeed something theological about sleep. Because David here, when he falls asleep, he's unprotected, right? His enemies could come right in, kill him. In the same way, every time we close our eyes, we leave ourselves vulnerable as well. I mean, how many times have you gone to sleep and waking up the next morning, thanking God that you actually woke up to see a new morning? How many times have you done that? It's so easy to go on immediately through our day, especially if you wake up late. You know, I, I, I wrestle with the same thing. Sometimes we just need to slow down and really recognize that God has protected us during those hours we are asleep. You see, when we recognize all that God has given to us, especially this joy when he, God shines his face upon us, it gives us confidence to rest. It gives us confidence to rest. And this really then picks at the heart of it all. Because when we struggle with our sleep, when we struggle with something like insomnia, when we struggle with fear, anxiety in your life, and you're working with that, really the hardest thing to do when you're nervous, when you're anxious, when you're worried, is to let go, right? The hard, that becomes the hardest thing to do, to let go, to relax. And to... The issue here is a matter of control. A matter of control. It's you, when you pray to God, perhaps you pray, but you don't fully trust that God will provide. Or you understand that God is good, but you don't fully believe that God will do good for you. And, and when that happens, when those doubts creep in, it creates anxiety. It creates certain fear. We don't have peace. We have unrest in our souls. And if you struggle with that, I want you to ask yourself, what is it that you truly want? What is it that you truly think gives you more joy than having God's face shine upon you? I mean, this, this is really at the core of it all. Just to share a quick personal experience, and I'll, I'll wrap this up. 
I remember the first time I went through a breakup and I couldn't sleep. Couldn't sleep at night because my mind couldn't let go of the thought, did I do enough? Did I do something wrong? Was there something I could do now to salvage the relationship? Can, is there anything, anything at all that I can do? And these questions circle through my mind, keep me up at night. But what it does, as I look back upon it, is it points to one thing. I couldn't let go of the relationship. Because I thought that this relationship will give me more joy than trusting God in my singleness. I didn't lay hold of the joy that God has put in my heart. And I didn't trust God. See, when we go through spiritual, mental, and emotional unrest, it stems from a misplaced joy and a love for earthly things. It's about trusting this world or your own abilities more than God. And so let us look at Psalm 4. And let us remember to tremble but not sin. To ponder upon these things in our hearts. To not let the lies in your head take control of your mind and body, but instead to pray to God. To ask him to shine his face upon you. To shine the light of Christ to your heart. To, to illuminate that and to remind you of the joy that you have. To keep your mind and eyes upon Christ. And to hear Jesus say back to you, come enter my rest and find peace in your heart. The big idea is this. God's grace found in the light of the face of Jesus Christ provides you the confidence to pray to the Lord, proclaim truth to others or to yourself, and rest in peace. This is the great reward of the gospel. We're pointing people not to salvation, but to God. He is our joy. He's our eternal treasure. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word that tells us, that points to us your amazing grace where your, where your son becomes revealed to us and we come to see just how wonderful you are. Thank you, God, for giving us the gospel which reveals to us the face of Christ and we can rejoice in that. Lord, let us cling to that joy. Let us hold on to it in the midst of our struggles, our stress, our worries. Let us remember that we have an eternal reward that's unfading, imperishable, found in you alone. Thank you, God, for giving us this treasure. Let us then, let us then sacrifice everything to hold on to it with joy, with hope and peace. And so, Lord, thank you for all they have given to us, be with us, bless this time. Let us worship you with our hearts. I pray this in your name. Amen.